Hello, uh, John. John Preston. Welcome to um, Time Team. Um, and I'd like to say uh, thank you so much for having bought the work you did to The Dig and the film that many of us are watching at the moment. And I know there's a bit of a family connection, but putting that book together, worst of any book is quite a job to do. And I think you put it together in a way that brought out some of the realities of the archeology. span And, and I think um, you deserve uh, a big thank you. Archeologists are often good at digging, but not so good expressing themselves. <laughs> and, uh, your your well, book, uh, sort of got at some realities, which I'd like to talk to you about. The first thing I'd like to mention, wonderfully, your aunt was Peggy Piggott. And what a what an amazing connection you have. Did you actually know her well enough? Or? I, I didn't know her very well because for various complicated family reasons, she and my father didn't really hit it off that well. And so I would see her at kind of family gatherings, but they were pretty few and far between. And and yet I, she was always this kind of fascinating figure. She was this kind of whiff of exoticism about her, which was otherwise in pretty short supply in my family. Um, and so it was a source of frustration to me that I didn't really know her. And indeed, you know, I was sad when she died. And so in a funny sort of way, it gave me the opportunity to pay some kind of, sounds terribly pompous to say, pay posthumous tribute to her, but there was an element to that. And it struck me that in the book, um, there is a sense of what the process of archeology span does, that process of quietness that comes with that applied digging. And I wonder whether that archaeology, had that come from any experience you'd had in archaeology? Have you ever been on a dig? Have you ever dug anything up? <laughs> I am. I have to put my hands up here. Woefully ignorant um, about archaeology. I've never been on an archaeological dig. Um, and actually, when I was writing the book, I was very lucky because Martin Carver, who I'm sure you know, was yeah. incredibly helpful. Oh. Um, and sort of guided me through it as if I was, you know, a sort of slow six-year-old. He kind of, you know, just explained the process of excavating the mounds. But actually, although I'd never been in an archaeological dig, I, I was at school at Marlborough. We used to be allowed out on bicycle rides, and I would go to West Kennet Long Barrow and Avebury and Silbury Hill. And I was, so I was always fascinated by those sites. So there was a kind of, there was a seed that was quietly sprouting there, I suppose. And indeed, actually, when I'd started writing the book, you know, you were talking about the process of archaeology. It suddenly occurred to me that archaeology is not that different to writing a book in, or writing a novel in some respects. Because, you know, an archaeologist, you know, he or she is is kind of, 
as it were, paring layers off, brushing sand off, or soil off, and with luck revealing something, slowly revealing something. And, and the same, without absolutely strangling this analogy to death, could be said of writing a novel, which is what you tried to do with characters. Uh, I'm going to dare to read you back a bit of your book. <laughs> That's fine uh, by me. Uh, and so forgive me if it doesn't sound like your voice. But what's written here seems to me the writing of someone who gets archaeology. And either you picked it up from Martin or you picked it up from your book analogy. But this is Peggy talking. And I think one of the things I'd like to get back to is Peggy's role in the book and in the subsequent film. Um, and, and you writing her lines for her. She says, um, normally there is something not simply absorbing about narrowing one's focus to such a small area, but also soothing. Your world has shrunk to a few square inches of earth and nothing else mattered. Nothing else can be allowed to matter. And if you wanted a statement that was sort of Zen and the art of archaeology or mindful archaeology, I'd put that on a on a T-shirt. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. I mean, you know, the the bizarre thing is, you know, I wrote this book, what, thirteen years ago, something like that. Um, so it does feel rather strange coming back to it now, uh, and and being reminded of it. Um, I mean, I'm not. In a funny sort of way, ignorance can be something of a virtue when one is writing, uh, because you you've got to try and put yourself in the mind of somebody who you wouldn't normally inhabit, and that's both a challenge, and if you feel that you're getting it right. Of course, it can be incredibly rewarding as well. Peggy is such an interesting character. And um, here in the book, you have a saying why she wanted to study archaeology. And I'm always interested by what people give us an answer to that. You know, oh, I, you know, I'm interested in treasure or I'm interested in this. And in Peggy's uh, piece, you put into her mouth the words, it makes perfect sense. That's why I wanted to study archaeology. So much of life just slips by and with so little to show for it. I suppose I wanted to make sense of what does endure. And I think that was a, a, lovely, a lovely sentiment. Did you feel uh, in the film that, in a sense, Peggy's archaeological knowledge and background was was slightly less apparent than I think it is in your book? I suppose I, I suppose so, but I also felt when I wrote the book, I did try to stick as closely as possible to what had happened. But, you know, you, you do, as it were, come to a kind of fork in the wood fairly quickly where, you know, you either go down the purely documentary path or you say to yourself well you know yes I do want to stick to what happened if I can but on the other hand what I you know my main concern is to tell as dramatic and involving a story as possible and you know that's what you try and do as a novelist so I 
you know, it was a kind of balancing act, and and I, you know, I I changed things in that I gave Peggy a bit of romance in the book, which is actually unconsummated, but nonetheless I gave it to her, and they took that a bit further in the film, and it it didn't bother me. That side of it didn't bother me um, because I think if you're lucky enough to write a book and it gets bought for a film, you kind of got to bid it farewell. And, you know, obviously if they turned it into a kind of musical with lots of goose-stepping Nazis, then that really would have been an awful thing. But it seemed to me that, yes, there's been all this fuss that Peggy is portrayed as, you know, it's a very tiny moment when she kind of, you know, um, is a bit clumsy. Um, to me, it didn't. It didn't kind of uh, traduce her or um, play down her expertise. I mean, I, that was absolutely not the intention. I don't think it comes over that way. I think the general context of the thing is what. There's a flow of so many things going. Um, I'm interested in terms of the research you might have done. Did you yeah. go back to? Rory's photographs? Did you go back to documents? What what were your sources for this information? My aunt had had written, Peggy had written about a hundred pages of a memoir which yeah. had never been published. Yeah. And my half-sister, who was kind of really brought up by Peggy, uh, had a copy of this. And weirdly, as far as I remember, there's, I don't think there's any mention of Sutton who at all in it. Um, but it gave me a tone of voice for her. So I was able to um, take the research and then try and kind of mould it uh, and, and give her a voice on top. So it all, with luck, seemed more or less plausible. Um, I've got my archaeological digging hat on today. I can see, yes. In honour of Basil, Basil Brown, <laughs> wonderfully played by Ray Fiennes, um, who is the sort of the, the hero of the piece in a way. But you engage him in battles that I'm not unfamiliar with. Um, the diggers who know what they're doing, yeah. uh, usually getting on with it underneath the earth, in some cases having to battle against piles of earth which fall on top of them and one thing or another. Then there's a sort of what Phil Harding calls the management. And um, I think the dynamic of that playing out, how much did you feel that was, because I really wanted Basil and Mrs. Pretty to win at the end. Um, but that dynamic was, was very strong in the program, very accurate. How did you feel about that and, and, and how it developed in the film and, and what made you interested in that dynamic? Well, I was very, I mean, to show, I was very happy with it in the film. When I wrote the book, the book's got three narrators. It's got Mrs. Pretty, Basil and Peggy. And I wanted to try to give equal weight to each of their stories. And the common theme that united them was that they're all within, as it were, touching distance of something that's going to give them a sense of fulfillment. And they never 
quite get there. Mrs. Pretty wants a, a sense of communion with her late husband. Basil, I felt, wanted the respect of his peers. And Peggy, to some extent, wanted love. I wanted this the relationship between Mrs. Pretty. And I don't believe that this was... Um, yeah, I think this was actually what happened, that you did have this sense that um, Mrs. Pretty and Basil um, were instinctively on the same wavelength and that they liked one another and, ha- and that, you know, plainly there was a big class difference between them. But ultimately what the things that they had in common outnumbered the things that were, you know, were uh, not exactly keeping them apart, but, you know, that they didn't have in common. Actually, of course, in, in real life, they both had an interest in spiritualism, which was in the, which was in the early drafts of the, of the film. And in the end, it kind of got taken out. And I can see why it's, it's you know, it's difficult. You end up something like, a bit like Blythe Spirit, unless you're, you're careful, you know, with kind of ectoplasm and stuff like that um and and i and i felt that that the relationship between uh, basil and mrs pretty is the is the absolute core of the film in many respects um and and it is i hope touching um and of course the relationship between basil and robert the son as well i mean he's a kind of quasi father figure I think it's always, I, I know with archaeological sites, with Time Team, that there's often a point when you've done everything you can practically, but then somehow you have to fall back on a gut feeling that yeah. we should perhaps dig here and not there. And I think that residual aspect of that, it, it came out in the film where I think Basil says to her, you had a feeling. Yeah. And, and he trusts his gut and her gut. Um on the practical side, I was I was delighted. We went up to Sanday uh, in the Western Isles and we excavated a small Viking boat burial, uh, which had a tortoiseshell brooch in it. It's sort of like, you know, about 10 foot long as opposed to... Right, right. Um, but I remember the moment that we began to find the rivets and the robes and I thought it was very interesting, somewhere archaeologically speaking, either from Martin or from your own sense of it, the way into this magnificent treasure, which could have been Indiana Jones, let's dig a hole in the middle of it and whack. You began with Basil finding a bolt, a rivet, a rusty yeah. lump of metal. And six inches along was another bit. And I thought the reality of that was fantastic. Where, where did that sort of detail come from? That's a hell of a... <laughs> I, can't really I can't remember. I mean, I, I wanted... I, I remember when I was writing it, and it seemed such a dramatic thing somehow to find these discoloured patches of sand and this ostensibly rather almost mundane thing which has so much, so many implications attached to it. You, you get these patches of sand, and they're fanning out as the boat would have fanned out, and and you're almost and Basil's uh, imagination, as it were, fans out with them, and you know the possibility of what what might be there kind of opens out accordingly, and I remember 
when I was writing it, and I really found it kind of impossible to write to begin with. And and it was oddly enough, it was when I was writing the bit where Basil finds the rivets that I suddenly thought, hold on, maybe this can work. I just had a sense of it kind of you get that kind of rare sense you get when you're writing sometimes where it's it's as if it's racing ahead of you and you've got to keep up rather than the other way around. What was also nice, and this was another bit of your archaeological synchronicity that you managed to get at, was that um, uh, the find that Peggy found, Peggy Piggott, was that little pyramidical piece yeah. of jewellery. It's not the biggest thing of something. Yeah. Most people remember the mask, the sword, the scepter, yeah. which you include. But when you look at one of those things, and I've got a lot of these pictures in the books I've got, that those little pyramids are extraordinary. Yeah. They're, they're filigree, they're gold, they're garnet. There's milfoy decoration inside it. And to f it was almost like finding a tiny little jewel. And that yeah, was a exactly. wonderful moment. Well, and, and I think, I think that was the first thing that she found, and it sort of, uh, in a funny sort of way, the fact it was so small uh, didn't feel to me in any sense like a disadvantage. It actually felt like a good thing because it's as if you're almost kind of peering through a microscope, and this thing, you know, is so tiny and intricate and beautiful um and 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 there's a bit in the book i think where it talks about emissaries from another world and 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 and, and the fact that it was so miniaturized somehow made that to my mind more rather than less dramatic now going from fines to politics again dear ken stott yeah as soon as you saw him you thought here comes the baddie, yeah. which I think was rather well cast. Um, and he sort of rather blotted his copybook in several different ways in terms of modern attitudes and things. But you also gave him that bit of uh, content, which was about the problem with the Dark Ages. And at that time, we take it for granted now, but the Dark Ages was considered to be Roman civilization followed by a, grump, uh, a group yeah. of raiding Anglo-Saxon yeah. scruffs who knew nothing, did nothing. And, and Ken delivers that wonderful line, which is in the book about, you know, this wasn't the Dark Ages, I think. Yeah. And that's yeah. a yeah. big issue in archaeology. Somehow you've managed to draw that in as well. Well, I mean, I think I remember when I, when I started researching the book and I went up to Sutton Hoo and there's the visitor center there and it's got i seem to remember there's a sort of a, 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 an old bakelite phone you can pick up and you press a button and my aunt's voice comes out of it sounding unbelievably posh i mean like it sort of makes the queen sound you know a bit kind of common um and she's talking about how poignant it was to excavate this lost civilization at a time when it seemed their own civilization was about to be blown to smithereens. And that was one of the things that most appealed to me 
about the story. You have this a sense of a sort of temporal pivot, I suppose. I don't know if you know this, but the Council for British Archaeology has a club called YAC, the oh, Young Archaeologist Club. Right. And and dear Robert ought to be a kind of hero for Yak. Yeah. Because both in his in his relationship with, with Basil, that that wonderful and his love of science fiction and, and the things they find. Um yeah. but also that imagination that he throws at it, that these were visitors in a ship from another space. And I I thought he played a very nice very important role through the whole thing. He also humanised Basil. You thought what yeah, a nice chap. Exactly. No, and I thought actually, I thought the the, the boy playing that role was absolutely brilliant. Um, and certainly, when I when I was writing the book, I for years I'd sort of had this very vague, wishy-washy notion in the back of my head that I wanted to try and write as it were, a kind of buried treasure story for grown-ups. And then it kind of, as it were, landed in my lap. And Robert was such a key part of that because I wanted a story that was going to evoke books that I had read and loved when I was his age, like the obvious ones, like Treasure Island and Moonfleet and things like that. And indeed, when the... Uh, finds are taken back to Mrs. Pretty's house. Uh, they were once, I think they were actually underneath Robert's bed uh, at one stage. And I just thought, you know, what an extraordinary thing it would be like to be a kind of 10-year-old boy, for treasure to be found at the bottom of your garden and for it to be stored underneath your bed. I mean, it's just such a fabulous rich image somehow. Um, if you can bear with me, I'm going to read you a few more of your lines from the book again. These are from Robert himself. You put these words into his mouth. Um, time had blurred. He's looking at one of the sand burials, as they call them, the, the figures that are just there. Time had blurred the body's features into anonymity and had almost made it melt into the earth. I've been on quite a few Anglo-Saxon sites where there's been nothing, it's, it's melted. You know. For all that though, it hadn't succeeded in destroying it, not entirely. Something, if only a fragile shell was left. At that moment, as I stared down into the pit, this felt like a consolation of sorts. And uh, there's a lovely wisdom about, this is Robert, writing as an older person i think isn't it i forget the date yes it is yeah that's right he, go, he goes in the book he goes back uh in the 60s because there was another uh excavation wasn't there in the 60s there um and indeed i think i'm right in saying that they did dig up one of his roller skates i mean it's in the book Yes, but I think right. that's right. roller skate, and it ended up on his desk. Yeah. you gave yeah. it to him on his desk. That's right. Yeah. I think I think that that really happened. That he did go back to Sutton Hoo, and he was presented with this kind of rusted roller skate that uh, you know would have belonged to him almost thirty years earlier. 
going from the rusted roller skate to the wonderful Sutton Hoo mask and all the objects, I thought the film showed a degree of restraint um, because when I think of Sutton Hoo, I have all these images of gold, the beautiful buckle, the purse which we see being dug. What was the effect on you when you first, having thought about it, saw those objects in their pristine, clean state, glistening in the lights, presumably, of a museum? Yes, but I, I had very mixed feelings, actually, because I remember when I first went, they were kind of... I mean, I don't think they were actually in a corridor at the British Museum, but they were really kind of downplayed and rather badly displayed with no great sense of context and the, the people involved. And so I was kind of obviously thrilled to see them, but also a bit annoyed that they were kind of, you know, being... Um, they just they just were not very well displayed, and of course now there's been you know this there's a new gallery, everything you know it does look great and it's beautifully lit and so on. It's much much more dramatic. Um, so I had, as I say, I had mixed feelings when I went to see the treasure. And weirdly, when I first went to Sutton Hoo. I had mixed feelings as well because I, I just, I'd sort of visualised the mounds at Sutton Hoo as being roughly the same size as Silbury Hill. And, of course, you know, they're not. They're much, much smaller. Um, but, you know, as a lot of people have said about that Suffolk landscape, there is something very almost kind of unearthly about it. Um, I always thought that it's kind of interesting. A lot of those M.R. James ghost stories are set around there. So, you know, there's just... There's just something about it. Um, as uh, you mentioned, we were chatting a bit early and you said you'd watch some time teams. Yeah. One of the things on time team we used to do, we'd have Victor um, drawing. He's actually done some illustrations of the Sutton Hoo boat somewhere. Oh. And seeing the king, we think he might have been Radwell, lying there in that splendour. And then the journey from the river do you in your imagination do you have a kind of legendary view of of that process of how he got there in his life did you begin to take more of an interest in the anglo-saxon um history and the kind of events that went round or something like that huge boat burial yes i did i mean i you know you know i did do as much research as possible and i remember a friend of mine saying when I was writing it, he would say, oh, well, you know, you really got to have a, um, you got to have chapters of, you know, where it's um, set in the kind of seventh century and everything like this. And you got to describe how the boat was got there and everything like this. And I was going, oh, no, I don't think I, oh, I, I, don't think I, can, I can do that. And you know, I don't think it's necessarily a very good idea. Um, and so, Yes, I did a lot of research on it, but I deliberately didn't want, you know, I wanted it to be a mysterious process, actually. And of course, you know, when you go to Sutton Hoo and you look down towards the the estuary, um, and you can visualize comparatively easily, you know, these hundreds of people hauling this enormous boat up really quite a substantial slope 
um, I, 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 you know, I just I wanted to steer clear of that historical reconstruction. Although, of course, what I did was a historical reconstruction, but some of something that happened, you know, seventy years earlier, rather than you know seven hundred or something, more than seven hundred, obviously. I think uh, it's interesting. We've had some conversations with other authors, Kate Moss, Bernard yeah. Cornwell comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could probably yeah. do a pretty cracking. Um, yeah, no, I'm absolutely sure, but I'm afraid I don't think it's within my capabilities. <laughs> That's very modest. Of um, a few final questions. Um, uh, it, time team. Have you got any thoughts about Time Team? You've watched a few programs in the past. What was the impression you got? I love Time Team. I mean, uh, I adore Time Team. I mean, it was one of the things that fascinated me when I was when I started researching Sutton Who. The way in which archaeologists have changed from the kind of era of, of Stuart Piggott, where they were, and obviously it's a wild generalization. Um, uh, they, 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 they were this kind of very tweedy, pipe smoking uh, lot. And now, and then you look at Time Team, and they were, <laughs> people, people look like refugees from a kind of heavy metal band. And you kind of go, oh my God, this is really bizarre. <laughs> it's this kind of seismic shift in British society, which, you know, probably rather accurately mirrors. Um, but, you know, I've always been a big, big fan of Time Team. I loved it. Um, it's interesting to think the transition, you know, we're talking about perhaps doing some more Time Teams at yeah. some point in the future. And um, the new technology we have, I, while I was reading your, your book, I had a sort of vision of wanting to show Basil Brown um, some of the things we can now do. Yeah. Which combine LIDAR, radar from the yeah, yeah, yeah. GPR on the site, so he could see underneath the soil um, with GPR. And we can put them all together in a model you can sort of fly around. And I think I remember in the book you said something about Basil wanting to fly or he. I, I, I remember being very fascinated by all the OGS Crawford. Uh, stuff and there's a very very good biography of Crawford, which is called I think Bloody England or so, um, um, and and you get this extraordinary sense of of Crawford flying um, over England in the twenties and this kind of palimpsest of things you know coming through from the past. Uh, these old field boundaries and mounds and things like that and and of course now where, you know, many generations on from that. Um, but it seemed such a wonderful idea that you were, uh, you know, from a bird's eye view, looking back into the past. How would you feel about um, some new um, exploration or some new information coming out from Sutton Who that it was sort of ongoing? Well, I would be, you know, I would be thrilled. I mean, because, you know, I don't think any site should be set in aspic. Um, and, you know, as we found recently, um, you know, particularly around Stonehenge, for instance, you know, there's a, you know, there's a lot more there than, you know, was previously thought. 
Um, so the notion that, you know, you've, okay, we've done that, let's move on to something else. No, I think absolutely, you know, it's, you know, one of the fascinating lessons of archaeology is that it's always, as it were, got more to yield. And um, one of the questions we ask our guests on Time Team was, if I was to give you Time Team for a week, ah. you get the whole team, you get a helicopter, geophysics, ah. Carenza, Helen, Stuart, John, are all there for you. What site or what location would you like to take them to? Well, that's really, mm, I mean, I suppose I've got two candidates. Um, my Aunt Peggy, in her will, left money to uh, the National Trust to buy some of the land around Silbury Hill. I, you know, I'd be very interested in that. But I would also, because I went to school in Marlborough, and the Marlborough Mound is now known to have been a kind of, you know, as a sort of junior partner to Silbury Hill. Um, and, uh, you know, plainly there's been some attempts to find out what's inside. But I would be very, very interested to do that so we've got a site and i would be interested to if we actually managed to do something like that and you had time i'd love to invite you along <coughs> give you a trowel let you do a little bit of scraping do you think um, that might be something you might yeah. enjoy I'd, I'd, I'd be absolutely i'd probably be incredibly bad at it but yes i'd, I'd be thrilled John, thank you very much. Um, I know you're very busy at the moment and it's been a, a, a thrill talking to you. The combination of reading the book and watching the film, I think, will give a lot of other people some idea of the magic of archaeology. And, and for doing that, for placing Sutton Who in the popular consciousness, I think you deserve a big vote of thanks. And I'm going to raise my hat to you and Basil uh, Brown. And lovely to talking to you. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. We can't do any of this work without you. So please subscribe, back us on Patreon, and make sure that Time Team comes back again.